This morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to resolve all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. It's been a little while since I have been up here. We'll see if I'm rusty. Uh, I don't mind. I love uh, sitting and listening to the word revealed, uh, and I appreciate how it is uh, carefully done every week. If you spend any amount of time listening to the preachers on TV these days, you'll get the impression that the whole world is waiting with bated breath for the temple of the Lord to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. It seems the current concern, but history is replete with this same thinking. Ever since Nero destroyed the temple in 70 AD, there has been an undulating anticipation of reconstruction. Not but 60 years after its destruction, was rebuilding permitted by Emperor Hadrian in the year 130. Soon after, though, he changed his mind as a punishment for a Jewish revolt. In the year 360, Emperor Julian, who was affectionately known as Julian the Apostate, again permitted construction rights to the Jews. And this was an attempt to reverse his predecessor Constantine's Christianization of the empire. 
He reasoned that by reinstating traditional Jewish practices and places, Christianity would be set back. In 610, the second Persian emperor drove, empire rather, drove out the Byzantines and they allowed the Jewish people to begin construction again. But that was short-lived when the Byzantines returned with a vengeance. And they actually allowed the Christians in the area to destroy what the Jews had begun, and the Christians then turned the site into a dump for at least several decades. Late in the 600s, the Muslims constructed the Dome of the Rock, and later Al-Asqa Mosque on the mount. And they placed the dome right on top of the traditional temple site. Since that time, there has been sporadic talk of rebuilding, especially during the late Crusades, and then again in the modern era, when the State of Israel was established, 1967. Nowadays, <laughs> I am rusty. Nowadays, every time there's an uprising, such as in the current news, this topic reemerges. And you might not think so at first blush, but today's passage addresses all of this directly. Mark 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And much has been made about this verse, about possible meanings and times, but most believe that we are to understand this as a simple declaration that the kingdom will come soon. Just like in Mark 1.15 when Jesus declares the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, some here will not taste death is an idiom to indicate brevity. We might ask Why? Two reasons, really. First, this verse comes directly on the heels of Jesus' explanation that those who follow him are called to suffer like him. He just told them that some would have to die for his sake, so now in the next passage he speaks words of assurance, encouraging them that those who suffer as his disciples still have great reason for hope in his rule. And this is because his kingdom will come soon. The second reason for this indication of brevity is because throughout the book of Mark, the kingdom of God and Christ himself are linked so closely together that they cannot be separated. The king brings the kingdom. The son of man, as he refers to himself, is the long-awaited son of David the rightful king, heir of Israel's throne. And that gets us somewhere, but not all the way. And that's just a reality about Christ's present kingdom. We find ourselves in the already but not yet place, the middle. Jesus is already king. Peter just identified him as the son of God in the last passage. And God himself, earlier in Mark, tore open heaven 
and his spirit has descended upon Jesus in what many have called an anointing ceremony. And these are symbols. It's not like Jesus doesn't get the job if the spirit doesn't descend upon him. But in his baptism, the solitary man Jesus, representing true Israel, returns through the Jordan at his baptism. Further, God speaks himself in this moment, saying, Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased. 100% Jesus is king. Yes, but his rule is not fully consummated. Where is his final conquest? The end of all wars. Where is his throne, his eternal rule? I still sin. All of this it's yet to come when Jesus makes right all wrongs. Lucky for us this morning, a significant part of that already but not yet in the statement, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power, is about to occur in this next verse. Verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so six days later, after Jesus warned his followers that their allegiance to him would mean suffering for them and persecution and even death, and after Jesus had told them some standing there would see his kingdom shortly, he takes three of them up a high mountain and they witness him transfigured before their eyes. He's changed in body, transfigured. And this is the English equivalent of Mark's original Greek word metamorpheo, metamorphosis. Could have used that word because every school kid knows it now from butterflies. In that moment, Jesus is recognizably himself and yet totally altered. The shroud of reality is temporarily lifted, and Peter, James, and John see Jesus as he truly is. I think it's really important that we understand that Jesus doesn't just suddenly glow, but that the radiance, the blinding white brilliance, the beaming bodily intensity that is so bright that it actually makes his clothing luminescent is actually his natural state. That's who he is. Jesus is light. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. First Timothy 
6.16. Jesus is he who dwells in unapproachable light. He himself is all-consuming light. What they are seeing is his natural state. So what they see the rest of the time is a glory hidden. Only his human nature is visible. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The rest of the time, Jesus is shrouded, his glory is covered, radiance veiled, just as Moses had to be veiled after he met with the Lord. Now, speaking of Moses, and I bet some of you think I'm going to jump to the next verse about Elijah and Moses, but the first reference, because it begins a grand reference to many things Moses. Exodus 24, 15 to 18 says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt. We're going to look at this word a lot. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God's presence rests on Mount Sinai. The cloud of the Lord's presence lingers on the mountain for six days before anything happens. And it's not wasted time. These are the days necessary for preparation. Before Moses can receive revelation from the Lord, he has to make ready. Six days are needed for preparation. Then on the seventh, the Lord calls out Moses. That mark underlines this pattern on the mountain of transfiguration, places this as a Moses-type story. We are now clued in to watch for other Mount Sinai-type elements. And Mark points out many for us. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark in their Gospels don't give Moses and Elijah words. We don't hear their conversation. But Luke says that they were talking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the Greek word for departure Luke uses is so rich with with meaning, he actually writes they were talking to him about his exodus which speaks of his death. 
but it also carries the fullness of the rescue and triumph of God's people. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. One summer's evening, when I was in seminary, I was sitting on the front step of our condo with one of my roommates. Tyler Schultz knows that condo well. We were talking about God and watching perfect cumulus clouds scroll by on a bright blue after-supper sky. And then, and I don't want to scare anybody, BAM! The loudest, most closest, most terrifying crack of thunder that I have ever heard shook the whole entire earth around us, and I am totally 100% convinced that we were absolutely right under the center of its compression. And my buddy and I, we found ourselves hugging each other (laughs) for dear life. Utterly terror-stricken. Now I'm obviously a very macho guy. As manly as they come, no offense, Larry. And so was my friend. A farm boy, a tree planter. He once poked a badger with a fence post and it bit clean through it. So it's clear we're men's men. (laughs) But in that moment of fear, we, without thinking, (laughs) grabbed each other and held on like the earth in front of us was split open. I kid you not. Scripture says Peter, James, and John were all terrified in that same kind of way. So when Peter spoke, it was without thinking. And he was babbling about tents. They were petrified. Standing in front of the awful radiance of Jesus and Peter did not know what to say. I think it's interesting that in Mark's account we only have words from Peter and God. Verse 7 and 8, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Overshadowed is what the Spirit of the Lord does brooding over the deep of creation. Overshadow is what the Septuagint says occurs in Psalm 91 when God covers us in his pinions and under his wing we find refuge. And in Luke 1, Mary is told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And here, God once again overshadows, and once again, something very big happens. He speaks. He reaffirms that Jesus is his beloved son. Now, being that this is quite the glorious spectacle, you would think God would say, look at him. He's radiant. But instead, he says, listen to him. Listen to him. And this confers upon him authority. His words have consequences. We find this to be true, don't we? Jesus' words will link together thousands of years of history, hundreds of statements of prophecy, so many seemingly unrelated stories, rules, expectations into one unified revelation that centers on Jesus himself. And it all points to his sacrifice and his people's ongoing participation in his suffering. God says, listen to him. His words are my words. He will suffer and he will triumph. You will suffer in him and you will triumph in him. And then the cloud of God's presence leaves. And with him, Moses and Elijah. And all is silent. Once again, all is ordinary. And they turn and just follow Jesus back down the mountain like nothing happened. It seems so anticlimactic. And Jesus actually tells them, don't mention any of this until my resurrection. Just act like nothing ever happened. And Mark says this is the one time someone actually listens when Jesus says, tell no one. Verses 9 and 10, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. He's already told them. But it might as well have been told to them in code because without Pentecost, without the giving of the Holy Spirit, it all remains encrypted. John 14, 26. But the helper, my, sorry, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That was 1426. Listen to 1526 and 7. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. But for now, as they are walking back down the mountain, and they know something big has happened, something eschatological, something end timesy. Verse 11, they ask him, 
Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And they aren't just babbling anymore. They pose a pretty good end timesy question. And Jesus gives them the kind of answer that has to be mulled over. It's a good answer, but it brings together so many things that they wouldn't have unraveled it on the walk down. Again, it will be the Holy Spirit that brings all these things together. Adds centuries old prophecies, orders them to produce the kind of crisp theologies that come out of the New Testament letters of Peter, Paul, John, and others. Verses 12 and 13. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Matthew adds to this in his gospel, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, here's the fun stuff. They just saw Elijah in a kingdom come event, so they ask about him. It's kind of light, but Jesus' answer is the opposite of light. It spells doom and cataclysm. Let me reread or restate verses 12 and 13 and just remove the son of man must suffer part for readability's sake. Listen to this. Jesus answers, Elijah does come first to restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. In this, Jesus is directing them to the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament representing the last time God spoke through a prophet in 400 years. After Malachi 4 verse 5, there is no word from God ever anywhere until the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and his barren wife Elizabeth will have a son that they are to call John, who will be the herald of the Messiah, the Christ. So listen to the words first spoken from God to his people in centuries. This is Luke 1, 16 and 17. Gabriel's talking to Zechariah. Your son John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I want you to hear the words before the silence, the last words God speaks through a prophet for 400 years. Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
The final Old Testament prophet, promise rather, is where the first New Testament event begins. So what does all this mean? That a herald will come before the day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, meaning their dispositions will need to change. And if they don't, the Lord will come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. But when John the Baptist did come, he called all Jerusalem and Judea to change their disposition, to repent from their wicked ways. And Jesus answers this statement by saying, but they killed him. But they killed him and did whatever they pleased. The nation outright rejected John and his word. There will be cataclysm. So he did come to restore all things, but the very people he came to guide and to gather killed him. And when he called them to repent, killed him when he called them to repent and turn, return to their God. So then what happens when the Messiah himself comes with the same message of repentance? Jesus says they will cause him to suffer too and kill him also. And what then? A decree of utter destruction. Listen to this. It's found a little further in Mark. Mark 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what beautiful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Restated, some of you here will not see death before your very meeting place with God will be destroyed and your whitewashed walls will reveal only the, th the faith of men long dead. Now we began today talking about the reconstruction of the temple. And you might think that we've only gotten to its ruin, but that's not quite true. Which takes us back to this being a Moses-type story. Moses was the greatest prophet of God's chosen people. He spoke with God in a way that no one else ever did. He was given the law and represents the Torah and the covenant of the Old Testament. Before God told Moses how to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and later on the temple, which followed the same principles as the tent, before all this happened, the cloud on top of the mountain was God's tabernacle. The cloud is the pavilion of God, which both reveals and conceals his glory. That's not mine, that's William Lane's. Tabernacle means to dwell with. And the same cloud of God's dwelling, which visited Moses, now rests upon Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord God is in his temple. And what we see in the account of this radiant meeting is that even when the cloud leaves, 
God alone remains on top of the mountain. Put more clearly, when Jesus alone remains, the cloud has lifted. Moses and Elijah are gone too. God is in his temple. And the transfiguration shows that that temple is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus speaks as much in John 2. You'll remember when he runs through the temple and cleanses it of all the commerce and cheating and greed. John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing all these crazy things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. We know from scripture, Jesus is the temple of God. In Isaiah 7, 4, he's called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. In 1 John 14 and 16, and when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacle, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is very good news. The meeting place is not a place anymore. The curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn. The place of meeting is a person, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Acts 7, Stephen's witness, he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did my hand not make all these things? The tent in Exodus was a foreshadow 
of the Jerusalem temple. But even that temple and its later rebuilt version was a foreshadow of Christ and his church. Jesus is the temple. He's the cornerstone. And his people are living stones fitted together. There's no need for a third temple. And even if it was built, it would only be for sentimentality. A museum about how things used to go between the Lord and his people. Christ is the living temple, the resurrected sacrifice, our great high priest. Bricks and gold will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But first, Peter 1.25 says, the word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus Christ is the word. First Peter 2.4-6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Rebuilding God's temple on earth is thinking too small. In the same way as reestablishing the original borders of Israel's kingdom is shooting too low. Read Romans 1.13. Abraham and his offspring are promised not just the land of Israel, but the whole world. Another temple won't do. It cannot be what Christ is for God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. Christ is the tabernacle of God. Jesus Christ is our temple. And the transfiguration reveals that in spades. May God be glorified. But how then should we live? We are given a role. As living stones being built and fashioned into the temple of the body of Christ, how should we live? And I don't want to tell you what to do. I feel inadequate. I have five ideas, though. We are to live in community, in fellowship, in sacrifice, in utter dependence upon God and in praise. Josh has an incredible sermon about being living stones. He doesn't use that word, but what's the church going to look like when Christ comes? Who are we called to be to one another in this world? In community, we live close to one another We know one another. Community is a funny thing. We like it. We want community, people around us. But then, ah, it hurts. You know too much. You've seen me ugly. 
You've seen my sin. You've made me mad. We are to live in community. We are to work through those things, not run away from them. We are to live with one another in such a way as to build each other up. In fellowship does not mean coffee and squares, but in bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. It means life together. Shared problems, shared resources, shared joy, shared sadness. Where in sacrifice we give and give. Bruce Waltke in talking about the Proverbs says the righteous disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. That's sacrifice. The unrighteous, the unrighteous advantage themselves at the disadvantage of others. We are to be sacrificial as our Savior was sacrificial. We are to be in utter dependence upon God. Again, Waltke, when he talks about the Psalms, looks through them all and he says, the righteous depend upon God. That's the sign. It's the unrighteous that do it alone, that walk independent of God and others. We need to be in God's word. We are dependent upon it. We need to be in prayer. We need to live in obedience. And we are to be a people of praise. Singing on a Sunday is good. But a people of praise exude joy in what God is doing and in who Jesus is. You've seen it. Some people are just, you're a Christian, wow. We are people of worship. And rightly so, our God is to be praised. We gather in worship around the person and work of Christ. And in sharing communion, we proclaim the gospel and we remember our need for it. Let's pray. God, we pause now inadequate to consume all that you have shown. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates scripture. That we have eyes to see and ears to hear. A heart that is soft because of Jesus. Lord, thank you that we have a living temple 
an eternal dwelling place in Jesus Christ. Let us be a people of praise, living stones that live together so tightly as to support one another when the winds and thunders come. Lord, help us to be a community that witnesses well of the work of Christ in our lives. Amen.